uh, in the Bible to Matthew chapter 5. And that's page 968 in the Church Bibles and in the large print 1506. Matthew uh, chapter 5. And tonight we're going to focus uh, really on verses 17 uh, to 20. Well, over the last uh, number of weeks, uh, the various political parties have been bringing out their election manifestos. Uh, I'm sure that you've read all of them and that you're really clued up and you know exactly what all of them, uh, all of them say. Uh, I, I don't, so maybe you can inform me. But these documents are the ambition of the government to come for the country, that they hope they will govern over the next five years. So, so these manifestos of what the, the government wish they would be able to do if they were to be elected. Now, not many people do read the manifestos, but these manifestos do outline the plans which you are voting for or against. I wonder, though, if you were able to write a manifesto, what would you put in it? I'm sure you would have loads of really good and wonderful ideas. I wonder whether you'd get elected, I don't know. But what about if you were to uh, make a manifesto about the ambition for your own life? You were to write down, this is what I want for my life, not for the next five years, but until I die. What is it that you would put in your manifesto? Well, God's kingdom is not a democracy. Rather, it is a monarchy where God is king. But he does have a manifesto about how life in the kingdom is going to be. And the Sermon on the Mount can be described as Jesus' manifesto for his kingdom. It's not just a manifesto, though, for his kingdom. It's a manifesto for each of us uh, as his people. And we could look at the next part of the Sermon on the Mount uh, as the detail of this manifesto, the manifesto of the Messiah. So far in this sermon, we have seen what life in the kingdom is like by looking at the character of its citizens. So we've seen the Beatitudes, which we've uh, been looking at tonight. The Beatitudes describe what Christians are. This is who we are as, as God's people. And last week, we looked at verses 13 to 16 about the distinctive influence that those who live out the Beatitudes will have in the world around them. They are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And in this next section, and indeed the rest of the sermon, Jesus goes into detail about the conduct or behaviour of those who have this new character. What does this new character look like? Jesus explains in his Sermon on the Mount. And in doing this, Jesus outlines his manifesto of what kingdom life is all about. What his ambition is for those in his kingdom. What his ambition is for you and for me as his people. Now, every one of the manifestos recently um, released have an ambition. And you know what that ambition is by what's on the front of it. So, for example, uh, it might be strong and stable government in the national interest. Or it might be for the many and not the few. You may recognise those phrases, they've been uh, spoken of a lot. That's the ambition 
That's the, the front headline of the manifesto. But what about God's ambition for those in his kingdom? What is the, the headline? What is it that God wants for his people? And it can be summed up in one word. Righteousness. Righteousness. God's ambition for his people is that they be righteous or that they be holy. And in fact, this has been God's ambition for his people all the time. Listen to these words from the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then this is repeated in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. What is the manifesto of the Messiah? Be holy or be righteous. This ambition for us is introduced tonight by showing us God's standard of righteousness in his word. And Jesus does that by showing us the scriptures, the word of God, and he shows us that these scriptures show us righteousness. And he shows us what this is and then expands on it throughout the rest of chapter 5. So let's read uh, verses 17 to 20 of Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus headlines the need for righteousness in his kingdom. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. Now when a government puts a manifesto together, there are always brand new ideas. Things that have not been tried before, perhaps, to, to turn a situation around. And there was an expectation at this time that the Messiah would do just that. He would set up a completely new manifesto, a new way of doing things, that was completely and utterly new. People thought that he might take God's people in a completely different direction and abolish the Old Testament and make it obsolete. Part of the reason people thought that was because he was so different from the religious leaders of the time. They thought, well, because he's so different and these religious leaders, well, they're the ones that follow the law, then Jesus must be doing something totally new. But Jesus shocks us in this respect with these verses because in his manifesto of the kingdom he does not speak of something brand new. Rather, he does not speak of abolishing anything at all. In fact, Jesus says he did not abolish the Old Testament. In verse 17 we see the phrase, you can look at it there, uh, the law and the prophets. When in the Bible talks here of law and prophets, 
it is talking about the whole of the Old Testament. It's a way of describing the Old Testament scriptures. And it appears that perhaps uh, some people thought that he had come to get rid of those Old Testament scriptures and to bring in something brand new. And as you read the Gospels, you can see, can't you, how Jesus is so completely different to all the other uh, religious leaders. People might have thought that he was coming to abolish what had gone before. But Jesus says here, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now to abolish means to get rid of or to class as no longer important. And the Old Testament has not been abolished because Jesus has come. The Old Testament is the written word of God just as the New Testament is the written word of God. When Paul writes to Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed, he's talking of the Old Testament as well as the New. When Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1 how prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, he's talking of the Old Testament scriptures being the Word of God. It is the full word of God. And if that's the case, it can never be abolished. Because God's word is never abolished. Because it is perfect and eternal. And as we read read in Psalm 119 verse 89, Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. You cannot abolish God's word. It's, It's forever. You can't just pick bits out and say they're no longer relevant. Because they are. Because this is all the word of God. But at the same time, Jesus did bring something new. Because the Bible is divided into two parts, isn't it? The Old Testament and the New Testament for a reason. But in bringing the New Testament, Jesus did not abolish or make irrelevant what is old. Rather, he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, fulfill in verse 17 is the key word here about how we read the Old Testament today. Because Jesus did not abolish the Old Testament, fulfill here cannot mean that he's finished it, as in putting an end to it. You may hear people say, well, that the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore because Jesus has come. And so we don't really need to read it because all we need is found in the New Testament. No, Jesus does not make it irrelevant. It cannot mean then either that we add, we can add to it. Many people interpret the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus adding to the Old Testament as in he's he's changing it. He's making it say something it never said in the first place because Jesus is making something new. No, Jesus never changes, and this is really important when we're reading the Sermon on the Mount to understand this, he never changes what the Old Testament meant in the law. He deepens our understanding, but he never changes what God means when he says things like, you shall not commit adultery or murder and so forth. And when Jesus says he does not abolish but fulfill, fulfill cannot mean he only fulfills prophecy. You see, some people view fulfilment as uh, Jesus acting out what the Old Testament predicted he would do. So you'll hear things like, there are 353 prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. 
Well, whilst it's true that Jesus does fulfill many, many prophecies spoken of him, what he's talking about here is the whole of the Old Testament. Not just 353 prophecies, but the whole of the Old Testament. What Jesus means by fulfill is that when we read the Old Testament, because of Jesus, he gives us a deeper and fuller meaning to all that we read in there. J.C. Ryle helpfully sums this up in this way. He said, The Old Testament is the gospel in bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. The Old Testament is the gospel in blade. The New Testament is the gospel in full ear. So the Old Testament is important and useful for the Christian. It is still God's word for us. But Christ gives it a fuller and deeper meaning because the Old Testament all points forward to Jesus. When I first came to the church and uh, I came to Discoverers, we were teaching uh, about the Bible. The Bi- uh, and uh, I, The series was called I Stand in Awe and it was teaching the Bible. And when uh, the material we were using summed up the Old Testament to the children, it summed it up with three words and they were really helpful. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And then the New Testament, three words, Jesus has arrived. Jesus has arrived. And because Jesus has arrived, we can understand what the Old Testament says about Jesus' coming. Now this um, helps us enormously as we read the Old Testament. There are people, events, ceremonies, visions, prophecies, poems and songs that all talk in various ways about Jesus, telling us Jesus is coming. And when we look at the Old Testament law from the Ten Commandments onwards, we see how we cannot keep God's standard. We need a greater one to come who will keep it, Jesus, who obeyed all of the law perfectly. When Jesus met some of the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, he opened up the scriptures. And this is what Luke tells us. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all scripture concerning himself. And then in John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus said, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So the whole of the Old Testament, from beginning right to the end, testify about Jesus. You can look at it like uh, taking a picture of a mountain. If I was to take one picture of um, Mount Snowden, say, you might recognise this is Mount Snowden. But you would only see the part of Mount Snowden which I would fit in my picture. You can't fit the whole 350 degrees, 360 degrees of Mount Snowden in, in my camera. Okay? I'd have to take lots and lots of pictures going all the way around. And as you pieced all the pictures together, you might see this is Mount Snowden. You understand more of the mountain. When we went to the think tank just a few uh, weeks ago, they had these uh, glasses you could put on and they'd sent uh, drones around Paris. And you put the glasses on, and as you moved around, 
you got to see pictures of Paris all the way around. You got a better view of Paris because you had all the pieces put together. Well, that's a little bit like an example of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is, when you piece it together, you get more and more and more of a picture of Jesus. But it's only when he arrives that this picture is made fully clear. And now when you read the Old Testament, you see more clearly how it is pointing forward to Jesus, telling us who he is, what he does, why we need him. The Old Testament does all of that. So we, uh, we read the Old Testament differently than if he had not come, because we see him in it and we look at the different pictures. Now an obvious example of that is prophecy which he fulfilled. So when we look at, for example, Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, we can look at Jesus and we can see the reality of what God has done, how, how he has been bruised for our transgressions. How he is, how, and we look at the cross and we see how he's died to pay for our sin in the place of transgressors and so forth. And when we read Isaiah 53, when before Jesus came, We're longing for this to happen, aren't we? We're longing for this servant to come and bear our sins. But when Jesus has arrived, we read Isaiah 53 and we don't long for him to come. We're thankful he's arrived. And we see more clearly what Christ has done on the cross by reading what Isaiah 53 has to say. But the fulfilment that Christ brings also changes not just how we read prophecy, but how we read the law, which is where the main focus of the Sermon on the Mount is. The Old Testament law is found in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And this law was given by God to Moses to establish how the people of God were to live in the land God had given them. It begins with the Ten Commandments and goes on to talk about all areas of life as a nation and as communities within the nation. There is much of the law that as Christians we don't adhere to today. So, for example, uh, in our house this morning, we had bacon sandwiches. The Old Testament law would forbid eating uh, meat from a pig because pigs were unclean. You couldn't eat shellfish. They're the most perhaps famous examples. Most people understand that the, the people of God in the Old Testament couldn't eat pig. But today, Christians can eat prawns, can eat bacon, How does that square up with what Jesus is saying here about not abolishing the law? Well, the answer lies in what it means for Christ to have fulfilled the law. As you follow his life and ministry, you see that he fulfills the law in various ways. Much of the law was picturing Christ in different ways, reminding Israel of the seriousness of sin, the consequences, and the need for sin to be paid for. But the New Testament, especially uh, as we've seen in Hebrews, shows us that the sacrifices outlined in Leviticus and the temple itself are not abolished, but they are fulfilled. We don't need to sacrifice animals anymore as substitutes because Jesus has died as our once-for-all sacrifice. We don't need a physical temple for God to dwell in because he dwells in his people, not a building. Now the New Testament is clear often on whole swathes of Old Testament law that have been fulfilled in the same way as the sacrificial laws. So the laws on being clean, which is where we find the food laws about bacon and 
things like that, they have been uh, fulfilled as well. But how? How do, we, how do we understand? Well, the laws on being clean, which is where we find these prohibitions on food, were there to show how God's people could never be clean on their own. There was always something which made them unclean. If you read through Leviticus, you will see that nobody could go very long without being unclean at some point. There was always something, whether that be a a mold in your house or a disease that you contracted. But the New Testament comes and tells us that Jesus makes us clean himself and makes us clean from the inside out. And so the New Testament tells us in Mark 7:19 that Jesus declared all foods clean. You see the clean laws in Leviticus aren't obsolete, then they're not abolished, but they're fulfilled. We still need to recognize that we are unclean people. We 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 need to be cleansed by Jesus. But we don't need to pick and choose what clean and unclean food is because Jesus has fulfilled that and declared it all clean, and has made us clean. There are other laws that apply to Israel as a nation-state, such as the death penalty for grievous sins that Christ fulfilled by establishing the church, which is not a nation-state that has borders, but a worldwide communion of believers from all nations. But even these laws, though fulfilled by the establishment of the church, are not abolished. But rather, don't they show us the seriousness that God, ta- how God takes sin? So when we read how people were stoned for adultery or for badmouthing their parents, rather than saying, "Well, we don't have to do that anymore," we should say, "Look at how serious God takes these things." Later on in Matthew, Jesus was asked, "Which is the greatest commandment?" This is how Jesus replied. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The law teaches us how to love God and love others. And although the specific way we do that may change because Christ has fulfilled the law. As we read the law, we should look for the principle of how this law helps me to love God and to love other people. Much of the law is repeated and reinforced in the New Testament. For example, all of the Ten Commandments are repeated in various ways. They are fulfilled by Jesus as he lives them out perfectly but we still must follow them as the people of God, seeking to honour him with our lives by the standards he has set. In short, we have to to be discerning readers of the Old Testament, looking for how it points to Jesus, how Jesus fulfils it, and how it helps me to love God and love my neighbour, because that's what God wants for his people. And in verse 18, Jesus gives the reason why he does not abolish it. Verse 18, if you see, begins with four. And the reason is that the Old Testament is permanent. Look at verse 18. 
Why is it that he doesn't abolish it? In verse 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Till heaven and earth disappear is a proverbial saying of permanence. This is not Jesus making a statement about the new heaven and earth. This is Jesus saying, this will never, ever happen. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will ever disappear till heaven and earth disappear. That means never. We, we have similar phrases that we use. Uh, we might, it's not a great phrase to use from the pulpit, but it, it's one that I thought of. If we might say, when hell freezes over. You understand what that means? Or we might say, over my dead body. We don't literally mean any of those things, but what we mean is this will never happen. And that's the kind of thing Jesus is saying here. For I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, this will, this will never happen. Nothing, not even the smallest letter, referring to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, or the least stroke of a pen. Now the least stroke of a pen, the, uh, the best way that we can understand this is in our language that the crossing of a T or the, the dotting of an I, or the difference between uh, an E and an F, a capital E and a capital F, that one line that makes the difference. Jesus is saying, to the smallest detail, to the, the tiniest detail of the law, till heaven and earth disappear, it will, it will remain. And it will remain until all is accomplished. It will continue to have relevance for us. And for it to be accomplished means that all of what it says happens, happens. All that it says must be done, is done. Again, Jesus is not saying the Old Testament will one day be obsolete. Rather, he's saying that what the Old Testament talks of, all of it, every bit of the smallest letter will become a reality. Everything. In short, Jesus is saying that he has the highest possible view of the Old Testament scriptures. He views them as God's eternal word. Like we read in Psalm 119, that the word of God is eternal. That's how Jesus sees the Old Testament. And if a, if a Christian is a follower of Jesus, which they are, and Jesus has this high view of the Old Testament scriptures, which he does, then it must be true that the Old Testament is still relevant for the Christian. Which is exactly the point Jesus makes in verse 19. Look at verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, Jesus is saying, because the Old Testament is God's eternal word, it must not be set aside. And set aside literally means to, to loosen or to make unimportant. We can, we can set aside what the Bible says when we disobey it, when we ignore it, when we misrepresent it, when we manipulate it to say what we want it to say. We can set it aside. We can say, this isn't important, so I'm just going to go and do something else. In fact, the scriptures which are now included, including the New Testament, are so important that Jesus says that greatness in God's kingdom 
is judged by our obedience even to the least of the commands. Now it's easy for us to think, isn't it, that some commands are more important than others. And it's true that the consequences of disobedience are different depending on the command. But greatness in God's kingdom is based on how we obey even the least of God's commands. Even the ones that you think are insignificant. Jesus says greatness is based on how we obey those least commands. Greatness in his kingdom. That's not to say that we obey our way into the kingdom. That's not to say if we do these things we will become Christians. That is to say that as God's people who are, they are already Christians, greatness in God's kingdom is judged on following God's word. All of it. The Old and the New Testament. Remember, this is about kingdom life. How we are to live in the kingdom of God. So if we as God's people set aside any of God's commands and teach others to disregard them, we will be called the least in the kingdom. Now we teach others in both our words and our example. This is not just talking to church leaders. There is always someone looking at us as Christians in some way. But if you practice in what you do and in what you teach, in what you say and what you do, God's, uh, God's, uh, and you do God's commands in that way, you will be called great in God's kingdom. You see, greatness is about following God's word. This is his ambition for us. God has an ambition, and, and you might hear this in, in, in bad, said in a bad way, God wants you to be great. He does want you to be great, but greatness is on how we obey his word. This is the path to greatness. So in application of this, we should be keen to take Jesus at his word. As we see the whole of the scriptures as the sovereign, powerful, authoritative, eternal word of God. And we should get down to reading it, doing what it says, and telling others about it. So let me ask you, how is your Bible reading going? The whole of the Bible Perhaps, we, perhaps some of us need to recommit to spending some time each day reading the word, thinking about how you might do what it says and how it points to Jesus. You cannot be great in God's kingdom if you are not in God's word. And secondly, how is your doing of the word going? Are you letting things slip Loosening up on what is right, setting some things aside as unimportant. Well, how about recommitting today to taking seriously what the Bible says and obeying with our whole hearts? You see, but when we do this, we must understand that Jesus is not just talking here of an outward obedience, an outward show of good behaviour. We could look at the verses so far and think like that, like this. Jesus says the Old Testament is still relevant. He has not abolished any of it. It's important for the Christian to obey, even the least of these commands. And so to be right and to follow God's ambition for me, I'm just going to do what it says. I'm going to be good. I'm going to make sure everyone sees that I'm good. And then I'll be right. It's all about what I do. I'm going to do, 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 do. And I'm going to do my best. And, and then I'll be all right. 
and you'll be just like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They were all about doing, 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 doing to be seen by others to be righteous. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were seen as righteous. They were seen by others of having a high view of the Old Testament. But Jesus goes on to say that the righteousness of his people has got to exceed the righteousness of these well-respected religious leaders. And this is because, according to Jesus, righteousness is deeper than people think. Look at verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this is an enormous shock. An enormous shock in these verses. This group of religious leaders were looked at as the height of righteousness. You could not get more righteous than these guys. In Jesus' day, if you wanted to to have a, a look at what righteousness looked like, you would just go and you would see the Pharisees and you would see how they scrupulously lived out the Old Testament law. And the, the, the teachers of the law were the ones that, that wrote the laws. And the Pharisees, they would scrupulously follow those laws. And, and they calculated that there were 248 commands and 365 prohibitions in the law. And so fearful were they of breaking the law that they would make extra laws that would put as fences around these commands and prohibitions so that they figured if they don't overgo the fence, they definitely won't break the law. They, were all, they, were, they, were, they had rules for every single area of life you could ever imagine. And, were, and, and, and so they, they scrupulously tried to follow this. And they did it so everyone could see that they were doing it. And they thought that by doing this, they were righteous. All about what they do. But there were times when a law was just too difficult. And so they made things a little bit easier so that it could be followed. And we'll see that as we go through uh, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, how the Pharisees did that. So, so they made things really difficult and sometimes they made things a little bit easier. But when people looked at them, they saw them as righteous. And Jesus says to his followers, you've got to exceed the righteousness of the, of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Well, you could be forgiven if, the, the, if Jesus' followers were thinking, oh my goodness, oh no, things were going so well, Jesus, until you said that, how are we going to do this? It's like if you were to uh, go speak to someone about maybe playing football and you say, well, you can join my team if, if, you, if you're as good as Cristiano Ronaldo. And they might look at you and think, well, I can never be that good. I'll never make that. And that you might be forgiven for people thinking like that at this time. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had a big problem. And Jesus highlights this big problem throughout his ministry. Here are two verses which highlight it. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 28. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous. But on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Mark chapter 7 verse 6. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In fact, it's been a problem since the beginning of the law. In Deuteronomy 5.29, God says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands. What was the problem? The heart. The heart. 
They had a problem with the heart. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law had all these rules. They followed them and they did all of these different things. Do, 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 do. But the problem was the heart. The heart. Their hearts were not right with God. And all the things they did did not mask the fact that their hearts were not right with God. All the law-keeping in the world makes no difference to your standing with God if your heart is not right. The problem was that these religious leaders thought they were good enough. And if the Old Testament law has one lesson to teach us, we're not good enough. Nobody's good enough. And we need a change of heart. As you read even the Ten Commandments, if you have any sense of what they mean, they 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 can be crushing for us. Because we realise, I don't do these things. And the problem is with our hearts, which is why we need new hearts. And that's the Old Testament promise that Jesus fulfills. Listen to these words in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And then Jeremiah, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it where? On their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The law would be written on our hearts. And when Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin and rose from the dead, he paid for the sin which blackens our hearts and he gives us new hearts. New hearts which have his law written on them. He puts them in us so that our heart is changed so that we can live out God's laws. And in fact, when we read then the Ten Commandments now as Christians, they do not crush us, but rather they are promises to us. They're promises that, yes, you will live this way because this law is written on your hearts. And the reason this is so important is because the law itself is deeper than mere external obedience. It's about the heart. Righteousness is deeper than people think. And in the rest of chapter 5, Jesus gives six examples of what the Old Testament law actually means in its demands. Jesus smashes the bad interpretations of the teachers of the law when he says, you have heard it said... And then he brings the true interpretation. But I say to you. And then he talks in each one really about the heart. What obedience looks like from the heart. When we read these laws and their true meaning, we see that they're impossible to follow at the heart level except for a changed heart. You are not good enough to get to heaven. You are not good enough to stand before God. You have broken every law that could be broken. And you've no hope except God writes his law on your heart. And he does that. He forgives our sins. He writes his law on our hearts. And so when we we read this Sermon on the Mount, we read something that God has written within us that we are able to do. And with a changed heart, we can live as citizens of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. What are you relying on for your 
salvation? Are you relying on your own good works like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? If you are, stop. You're not good enough. Ask Jesus to forgive your sins and give you a new heart. And with the new hearts that God has given us, as we read the rest of this sermon, let us radically obey the commands that Jesus gives us from the least to the greatest of them. And let's do so with an eager anticipation of what God will do with us as we obey him. And let's eagerly listen to what Jesus says in this sermon and put into practice this ambitious manifesto of what kingdom life is like and in doing so, bring glory to God our Father. The Sermon on the Mount is a most challenging sermon but it needn't crush God's people. This is God's ambition for us and it will come to pass as he changes our hearts and moulds us and shapes us into the image of his son. Well, let's close uh, with uh, singing. Uh, We're going to sing God's 